The other day I awoke to the ominous news that two massive, mega-huge academic publishing companies, namely Brill and the Greuter, are merging, as if the ivory megaliths of these two giants weren't quite tall enough as it is, with their necessary but absurdly priced volumes that nobody can quite figure out who is making money off of. Certainly not the academics who write them. The news cast an ominous shadow over the Brute Norse community, affectionately named the Scandi Futurist Power Walking Club, as we realized immediately that some of our darkest premonitions and hyperstitions were beginning to manifest in reality. I have often lamented the fact, here and elsewhere, that traditional scholarly institutions are bleeding out and dragging the disciplines with them to the grave, leaving roving bands of itinerant scholars such as myself outroam the vast wastes brought on by the dust bowl of information saturation, eking out a non-living on content creation. Well, the response to this decentralization of academic specialization was long foreshadowed to receive a reaction. And here we see it, the two old titans banding together against the tides to quell the barbarian hordes of independent scholars knocking at the gates, hoping to be able to afford one of their $8,000 books. I fear that this is only the beginning. Soon enough, the De Brill Greuter megacorporation will be able to afford private military companies to wage a hot war on the sharing of pirated PDFs. They will come after bloggers with a master's degree. They will come for the podcaster who earns his daily bread taking abuse from 12-year-olds. And I did nothing because I didn't like his content anyway. But then one day, they will come for me. And they will come for the Scandi Futurists. And don't think they won't. Their black helicopters will hover over our houses, their battering rams will smash our doors, their tanks will flatten our gardens, and pull mothers and fathers from their beds, and they will take our laptops, and use that Xeroxed PDF copy of Reallexikon der Germanischen Altertumskunde as grounds to have us all guillotined live on the big social media channels after a kangaroo court. And the tenured who pulled the lever will say they were only following orders. Those of us who survive will be forced to go underground, perhaps driving the resistance from deep within what remains of Scandinavia. Even after the Scandinavian concept industrial complex has turned the entire peninsula into one big health and wellness resort for the elites and tech industry cyborgs to be sedated with hygge injected straight into their brain using cybernetic fika technology will have to resort to illegally obtained source-critical info mods and illicit blood memory infusions. We're gonna have to upload folkloristic motif databases straight into our brains, stick implants in our bodies that allow us to compose skaldic poetry as fast as we can speak, and counterpart microchips that allow us to decipher Drottkvet meter and kennings as fast as we can hear them and so make even less sense to the general public than we do right now, as the De Brill Greuter Corporation might be listening in on our every word. We are the subterranean cyber gnomes your friends warned you about, and we will forge alliances even with the hidden folk if we have to in order to survive. But those are worries for tomorrow, my friends, because today is, well, not quite a holiday special, but this is the closest you're gonna get. It is, however, a time for introspection and to tell you all I messed up because a lot of the material here is gonna be slightly kind of rerun-ish uh, from some of the holiday specials that I've had in the past few years. Um, and I've had a few of them, I think. 
I don't know, five, something like that. The first, of course, being the deliberately oxymoronically titled Pagan Christmas. And then came The Legends of Drunken Master on St. Thorlac, of course, which is Iceland's most alcoholized and patriotic saint. And in fact, it's Iceland's only saint. Um, a true brute Norse classic. And then there was the subterranean Yuletide extravaganza. And then uh, this is where it starts getting, you know, kind of out of hand because... I spent that entire episode getting into all of the ghosts and trolls and hauntings and wild hunts and whatnot of the Scandinavian Yuletide. Naturally, next year I followed up with an episode called Be the Yule Goat You Want to See in the World. But what the hell was I doing there? Because I wasn't talking about the Helvetes Yule Goat that I introduced the year before. Well, there are a few good reasons uh, for waiting on that, but... But still, you know, it's kind of incongruous that I ended up using that name. It was just just the name. I needed a needed a freaking title for the episode, and and I just ran with that. Um, and I squandered a great title because uh, that's what I should have called this one. Um, because in this episode, I want to talk about some specific mumming and masquerading traditions in Norway. But I might also veer off into other parts of the Nordic and Scandinavia. And I'm going to talk about some of the creatures associated with these masquerades. Most importantly, the Yule Goat or Yule Buck, but in discussing especially the more recent developments of the Yule Buck tradition, or Yule Goat tradition, whichever you prefer, there are certain topics that just cannot be neglected. That is, of course, the beliefs attached to the Yule Goat itself, but also the belief in a household spirit, variously called Nisse or Tomte, which ended up eclipsing the Yule Goat tradition, at least in Norway. To discuss this, we are going to have to nissemax to the extreme and delve into some of the folklore attached to these gnome-like creatures. As always, I bite off a lot more than I can chew, and it will take me a lot of time to get to the point. But if you're a regular listener, you know this already, and you're probably in for the ride anyway. And if you don't like it, I mean, you can listen to something else, I guess. There are many podcasts in the world, and unfortunately this is one of them. But if you can suffer through all my nonsense, there's some genuinely interesting stuff here that I have to share with you. Some of it might not have been presented in the English language before. I know those are fighting words, but I stand by them. Listen for yourself and make up your own mind. As always, I am Old Norse philologist Erik Storsen, and you're listening to the Brute Norse podcast where we walk backwards into the future. This is episode 47, The Mumming Mafia. So today I want to talk about some of the Christmas or Yuletide mumming and masquerading traditions in the Nordic with my usual Norwegian biases. This, by the way, is an extremely exhaustive topic and there's no way I can actually cover all of it. This is in part due to the fact that the evidence is rich but fragmentary and also highly variable from place to place in some of the details. You see that all of the time in the books devoted to these traditions that the author stresses how heterodox and manifold these traditions are. Some elements may appear over a vast area, but uh, there might be several different uh, variations from village to village or region to region. And this, to be honest, is probably a testament to uh, the antiquity of the tradition. Because when things are old, you can't really expect them to be all the same and uniform, right? But on the other hand, 
With these mumming traditions, they seem to be adapted basically to every generation, and they mutate at an uncontrollable rate. Especially, as we could expect, in times where there are rapid changes happening to society. Speaking broadly, the custom of dressing up uh, seasonally as some kind of troll or creature uh, is something that appears all over the Nordic area. And uh, you could probably say, uh, you could probably extend that uh, to uh, bordering areas as well and uh, continue going that way all the way across Eurasia. But I never said that this was in itself a uniquely Scandinavian thing. I'm just saying that there are particular flavors uh, to the Scandinavian expression of it, and um, that's what I'm here to explain. There are many places in the world with uh, particularly rich mumming traditions, um, uh, the British Isles being one of them. You have Basque Country and Sardinia. This is stuff that still plays a major role in the folk culture uh, in many places around the world. Much more so than I could honestly say that it does, or wish it did, in Scandinavia in 2023. All the more reason to talk about it here on Brute Norse, I think. I'll be talking a little bit about this now and then throughout the episode. Mumming in Scandinavia, for the most part, is uh, the stuff of uh, folk life books, old ethnographic questionnaires of uh, cultural heritage, uh, residual pockets of survival here and there, um, and uh, the odd uh, revival, which of course I wholeheartedly endorse. In Sweden, for example, you have Kampforbunde for Julbockens Återenførande, or the Struggle League for the Reinstatement of the Yule Goat, which is a sort of public outreach appealing to those who want to get rid of Santa Claus and once again strike fear into the hearts of children by replacing him with the good old Scandinavian Yule Goat instead. The Danes, on their end, have a sort of ecumenical Yule Goat slash Krampuslauf every year in Copenhagen, where Rune Jagne over at Norganimism plays a central role, by the way. While Norway, as far as I know, has no organized revival of this, but where Yuletide mumming is still kind of a thing in pockets here and there, even though it is rapidly fading as well. There's every reason to assume that mumming and similar forms of masked, ritualized drama in Scandinavia is really fucking old, but it's one of those things that are kind of hard to date. It may well have come and gone at different points, even, and like the Yuletide goblins themselves, mumming appears when you least expect it. Sometimes it thrives in spite of current trends and regulations, other times that's what kills it. There is something kind of ur-pagan about mumming that defies clear dating and developments. So what does this mean exactly, this term, ur-pagan, that I just throw out there as if it's obvious to everybody what it means? Well, ur-pagan is a term that gets uh, tossed around in the Brute Norse community quite a bit. It seems to kind of stick, it seems to mean something, but what exactly it means is kind of hard to tell. Ur-pagan, that's you are pagan. Ur-ur-pagan. Ur-heidnisch. Ur-heidnsk. Proto-pagan, if you like. Seemingly having the qualities of something inherently and deeply pagan, without necessarily being obviously pagan, in any denominational sense anyway. Something deeply tied to the world and the ground and subterranean. Something, something decidedly not heavenly? Does that kind of work? I don't know. Maybe it's a mood. Drinking in an underpass like some bridge troll. Now that's ur-pagan. An unbaptized child. Theologically pagan, I guess. But it's not really ur-pagan, though. But going to church and sneaking off with the body of Christ to do sorcery. Now that's ur-pagan. But it's not blasphemy that makes it ur-pagan. 
picking up an image of a saint that's been cast out of a Protestant church, then dragging it home to worship it like a domestic deity, serving it bowls of ale for the prosperity of the farm. Now that's Ur-Pagan. Knocking on wood, that's Ur-Pagan. Taking your hat off as you sow the fields as a sign of respect. Now that's Ur-Pagan. Murdering your shipmate because you talked about horses at sea. That's pretty Ur-Pagan. Not walking under a ladder, just in case. That's Ur-Pagan. Tossing money in the urinal for the piss elves. Now that's Ur-Pagan. Putting an evergreen tree in your house around Christmas time because evergreen trees are kind of nifty. That's Ur-Paganism. Carnivals and decadent debauchery. Saturnalian role reversal. Trick-or-treating. That's Ur-Pagan too. Anything that raises the alarm bells of Puritan church ladies is inherently Ur-Pagan. They seem to have a nose for that sort of stuff. Now, venturing forth from this perceived Ur-Paganism, which is a term we will return to, of masks and mumming, I would like to read a quote posted on the Instagram page of the excellent National Folklore Collection at the University College of Dublin, from an article by Marjorie Halpin called The Mask of Tradition, from 1983. Non-participant observers of masked rituals invariably raise questions about the ontological status of the masked performer. These questions often concerns the beliefs and the strength of belief in participants. Do they really believe that the masked performer is a ghost, animal, spirit, ancestor, god, or whatever the cultural being is named? Do the performers themselves continue to believe in the beings they represent? An obvious aspect of ritual is that it is clearly demarcated or framed in contrast to everyday life. Special rules, clothing, visitors, masks, food, names, dances, songs, even languages are unmistakable signals that an event of heightened significance is occurring. Ritual is thus embodied recreation in the fullest meaning of the word. Also, by its nature, ritual is a repeat performance. Its acts and utterances were encoded in the past. In their invariance itself, the words of liturgy implicitly assimilate the current event into an ancient or ageless category of events. This brings us to masquerade as a distinct form of ritual, widespread, ancient, and always possessing the one obvious feature of a disguised or transformed human identity. This is the essence of masquerade, that those who commit their life to the maintenance of the traditional order are given the privilege of breaking it. In the frame, they are transformed into their own ancestors, those who established the tradition in the first place and who, henceforth, are responsible for it. In other words, when they step back into ordinary reality, it is as their own ancestors. In Masquerade, ancestral wisdom is continually recreated. When you see a traditional masquerading display, it often strikes us as so strange and alien and so outside of what we think a given cultural context or religious context or whatever is about. And kind of pop culturally, almost second nature, without any further thought. Especially if it is to generate clicks, you just throw the pagan term on it, right? Just slap it on right there. Even if it has the slightest veneer of rusticity, no matter how inauthentic, 
Some asshole is gonna say it's pagan, making the term almost useless. But I think there's a lot of confusion about this. The perceived paganness or heathendom of this or that. The Christmas tree being a perfect example. Something almost instinctually interpreted as a pagan expression, even though Christmas trees can be traced back only to urban Christmas celebrations in Protestant countries that only rose to particular prominence among middle and upper class families after the Industrial Revolution. You almost couldn't imagine a less pagan origin story. It does not emerge from a specific folk belief, except for an apparent connection to Martin Luther. It has no pre-Christian transmission or continuity, and no direct association with uh, rural peasant culture. In Norway, uh, Christmas trees didn't really start to spread until the 1890s, 1900, 1910s, 1920s, started out in the cities and then trickled down into the countryside, replacing more antiquated Christmas customs, and was in many ways a significant contributor to the modernization of Christmas, you know, the killer of peasant culture, if anything. In northern Rogaland, where I'm from, for instance, uh, we used to have something called Julekrona, uh, which literally means Christmas crown, or Yule crown, rather, if we're being very literal. It's basically the same as uh, what the Finns call a himmeli, which is sort of a geometric kinetic sculpture that hangs from a ceiling made of straw. We had that, for instance, in Karme municipality, where I'm from, uh, until it was eradicated by the uh, introduction of the Christmas tree. Barely anybody in the area even knows that these things existed in the first place. But the uh, advent of Christmas trees are not the only things changing with Norwegian Christmas at this time. It coincides with the Father Christmas figure, Santa Claus, and this absurd idea that Christmas is about giving and receiving gifts, instead of appeasing things that would otherwise mess you up if you don't, and coming to terms with all of the things that should not be but fucking are, so you better deal with it. Yet, people look at this bourgeois Christmas ornament, and failing to recognize a mention of it in, say, Bible studies, assume that it must be some kind of deeply pagan element that has somehow survived the ages from the dark past. I mean, look at it, it's a glorified houseplant. But then, I cast a look at the Christmas tree, and, and I, you know... Hmm. Maybe these are simply not good criteria by which to judge something's apparent paganism on, in case that is that important in the first place. But for the same reasons that people look at the Christmas tree, become suspicious, fascinated, or start, you know, thinking there might be something else to it, I think they are at least half correct. There is something to it. That there is something about the lit evergreen tree in the darkness of winter beckons us towards patterns of thinking that are, I think, ancient. Just even consider the um, similarity with different motifs, you know, like the so-called tree of life and all of that crap. And hence, ur-pagan, proto-pagan, a looming specter that can always come back to haunt us. And whether the motif or object itself is really that old might be beside the point. It's kind of uh, more an archetypical thing. Of course, archetypes don't emerge out of nothing either. They are culturally derivative. Yet it might seem difficult to come up with a more archaic image that is also so immediately graspable to us uh, as a tree, uh, vegetation as symbol of life. That doesn't necessarily make something automatically pagan. You know, it would be completely impossible for any religion 
so-called non-pagan religions to have any sort of imagery if they couldn't interact with those sorts of motifs. It just seems to work in a wide abundance of cultural contexts. But I don't know, the um, comeliness of the image of the Christmas tree as um, a motif that invites people to make these assumptions sort of makes it a bit ur-pagan, if you ask me. People of many different backgrounds are able to conjure up meaning where there might not initially be some. Now, of course, in wrestling with this term, one of the listeners and former guests of this very podcast, a man whose input I very much respect, scholar of religion, Adrian Rinde, points out that ur-pagan is probably just as nebulous as the term pagan is, only with the added issue of alluding to a syncretic and idealized paganism that everyone from the Norse to the Aztecs somehow partook in, and maybe has a point, I don't know. I gotta be allowed some kind of opinion. But he also points out that the only reason why we talk about paganism in the first place is reflexive to Christianity, which of course has been the eternal point of contention. And I agree with him. Functionally, pagan only means non-Christian. And that is actually kind of a philosophical and semantic problem. The term ur-pagan has been hotly debated in the Scandi Futures Power Walking Club, that is the Discord server for the podcast. One of the senior members of the community, Jake, aka Bleary Enthusiasm, points out that some of the issues here are in part linguistic, and that we easily talk past each other due to deficiencies in the English language. Perhaps unpagan would be a better term, with the German prefix un or the Scandinavian prefix u can express both negation and intensification. Then of course you have the etymology that pagan originally means something like country bumpkin, someone who is falling out of step with contemporary culture. So in that sense, urpaganism would say that Paganism is inherently something vernacular, and somehow also inherently rustic. So in that sense, you might say that Ur-Paganism is not so much the absence of Christianity as it is the absence of scholastic snobbery. And it would make sense for a concept such as Scandifuturism to take such a term, hack it up into pieces, and recycle it for its own gains. Regardless, this is not the time or place to get to the complete bottom of this. But one issue I have with this whole idea about... Uh, Christianity as this host religion, this crucible that forges everything in its image. And everything that's old just kind of corrodes and falls apart at the touch of it. If you ask me, that doesn't sound any less essentialist than this perennialist ancient tradition shit that you see people peddle online. However, this idea that Christianity is this unstoppable corrosive force on any local tradition has been sort of paradigmatic among historians of religion. Because on the surface level, it seems to be true, right? You know, people go to church, they don't line up to see the local chieftain whack a horse over the head. At religious studies, I was always told that Christianity has done irreparable damage on how uh, Western minds conceptualized, say, God. Maybe the point wasn't put quite that bluntly, but... Oh, hi, hey, Moggy, are you... Please, I'm trying to record. Go away. Um... Yeah, maybe the point wasn't put quite that bluntly, but something to that effect, you understand. And that might seem like the case if you look at places like America, where I happen to live, um, where there's not really an alternative to that line of thinking. It's not like growing up in Scandinavia, where there's a full awareness that there was an entire pantheon before Christianity arrived, and where it's not at all considered particularly strange to at least harbor some sort of passive 
cultural pagan sentiment. That is, being sympathetic to the idea that, well, actually, our original gods are something else. Christian theology talks about faith as if that is what constitutes religion. And that might be true for Christianity, but it's not the case for many others. Not something that I think is very reasonable to impose on these local ethnic traditions anyway. If one of these so-called pagan indigenous belief systems uh, re-emerge through revival, uh, or their referential system at least, emerges uh, through revival, uh, even if it mostly serves as a cultural symbol, well, who am I to argue with it? That's fine by me. Some seem to work with this criterion that you need a so-called authentic reception, consisting of a continuity of worship that goes back thousands of years. That's a straw man, I think. Because there is continuity, it's called scholarly reception. It's called having sources. And it also comes in the form of folk traditions. It's kind of this idea that we were Christianized, and that's it. Lights off. I mean, I'm not a naysayer, I, we all know what happened. I mean, it's not like there's any point denying the historical fact of the Christianization. I'm not a crazy person. But people seem to be under the impression that uh, the process of conversion to Christianity in the Middle Ages represented a complete cultural replacement of some kind. Now, Christianity did change a lot, but there's a lot of stuff it did not change. Of course, cultures are always in flux, and there might be cases where we're misattributing certain correlations, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But if it were true that the Christianization really was this drastic, complete upheaval of Scandinavian ontology, then where does that leave trolls and hidden folk and other such figures that were central to people's experience of everyday life? They didn't frickin' step off the boat alongside the Anglo-Saxon missionaries. And I don't mean to imply that these ideas didn't change since, say, the Viking Age. Quite the contrary, actually. But this was a core part of the pre-Christian worldview, and it continued to stay with us until the Industrial Revolution and a little bit beyond. And the only reason why we say otherwise is because we maintain an artificial, arbitrary, scholastically informed divide between folklore and religion. Believing in and worshipping a god is religion. Believing that strangers are not allowed to touch your butter churn unless you pass glowing embers between their hands, that's not religion, that's superstition. It's folk belief. Regardless of what you choose to call it, some of these folk customs, not all of them, are pre-Christian survivals. There is in fact a very rich set of traditions in Scandinavia of customs that have elusive datings, but where we have no reason to doubt their antiquity. Uh, one example is votive offerings. When I worked as a research assistant at the place name archive at the University of Bergen, I was surprised to see just how often older informants pointed out spots in the landscape where they used to leave offerings after picking berries. Of course, you have the so-called cup mark petroglyphs that have datings ranging anywhere from the Bronze Age to the Renaissance. It's really not that long ago that many of them were tied to customs and beliefs that um, many of us would find exceedingly strange. In the Malar Valley of Sweden, for example, there were perfectly regular church-going people who made offerings to cup mark stones in order to appease the subterranean denizens that were believed to cause certain diseases. It was a way of hedging your bets that did not really threaten your belief in Jesus Christ or whatever. This was living practice at least as late as the 1920s. There is an article specifically on this in the first issue of The Fool's Mirror. But these examples are quite obscure and esoteric compared to some of the stuff that we're talking about today. Like the widely attested belief in household spirits who are treated entirely independently of Christian liturgy. The unwillingness to engage with this as anything but a lower form of pseudo-spiritual practice apart from so-called religion 
as mere superstition just really demonstrates that religion, at least how it is commonly understood, can be quite useless when it comes to describing actual religious behaviors. We tend to perceive Christianity as the default religion and everything else is kind of defined according to its standards. And again, it may seem like I'm being overly pugilistic using Christianity as a sort of punching bag, but I'm not trying to be polemical against Christianity as such, rather how it is used to leverage another form of materialist essentialism that seems to go unnoticed in day-to-day -day speech. Besides, that is also the textbook counterexample whenever we're talking about so-called paganism anyway, right? But it's also a matter of how we compartmentalize different aspects of what, you know, some people might call an enchanted worldview. I can also use another non-Christian example. Some of our sources for Sami indigenous religion, for example, claim that while the Sami had something akin to a pantheon of deities, the actual core of their religious traditions revolved around a complex of ideas surrounding the hidden folk. Saiva, as they call them. This is of course understudied, not just because Sami religion itself is understudied, but also because scholars have tended to consider that to be folklore or ethnography. And while we are probably not going to find a solution to the issues that arise from disciplinary atomism anytime soon, it does help a little bit that we're at least aware that these categories are not as distinct and mutually exclusive as we might first imagine. One of the many reasons why especially so many mid-century scholars became so reductionistic is of course because it's a reaction to the shortcomings of their predecessors, who could sometimes, you know, be a little bit too enthusiastic, a little too imaginative, to the point where any rustic peasant custom might as well be the key to unlocking the high cult of the Bronze Age. So this whole idea of a rural, pagan, rustic society versus a modern, Christian, Anyway, there's a lot of stuff that I could say about this, but it would be such a waste of time to go on and on about it instead of getting on with the fucking episode. Not only did Catholicism fail to remove a lot of the pagan elements from Scandinavian culture, which honestly speaking, I don't really think it tried very hard to do, Protestantism turned out to be equally bad at removing Catholic elements from the culture. You could, for instance, look at Michaelmas, Mikkelsmes in Norwegian, or Mikkeli. Michaelmas is the Feast of St. Michael, obviously, the Archangel. This is a Catholic celebration. Theoretically, the Protestant Church does not recognize saints or their feast days. These feasts go back a long time. Michaelmas goes back to the 4th century, I think. But obviously it would take quite a few more centuries before it reached Scandinavia, which of course had its own pre-Christian ritual calendar. When Scandinavia was Christianized at the end of the Viking Age, a lot of these old holidays would have been replaced by holidays like Michaelmas. Michaelmas was one of those holidays where the law demanded that you brew beer for the occasion. That in itself is a remnant of pagan legislation. The idea that making and drinking beer was a social and ceremonial responsibility dominated the Norwegian peasant drinking culture until the end of the 19th century. It's easy to see how local folk traditions might develop complex DNA over anything from a few generations to thousands of years, with all manner of local adaptions and exchanges. It's not like everything is lost with each paradigm shift, or every historical watershed. We can safely say that the Christianization of Scandinavia was one such watershed, but it was much more drawn out than people tend to think. The path towards folk traditions as we see them now, though, is complicated and long-winded and rocky draws from all sorts of different sources, and there are many other watersheds besides the obvious one, that of course being between paganism and Catholicism, which have left their mark on the cultural heritage that modern Scandinavians, and I suppose all of us, um, are the recipients of. The Protestant Reformation is important in Scandinavian history. 
Norway was in a personal union with Denmark at the time. We'd already been so for quite a while, and we'd continue to be under the Danes for a few centuries more. Unlike many countries on the continent, Norway didn't have any popular movements to speak of that pushed for Protestant Reformation. The decision was a top-down affair from the king himself down in Copenhagen, Christian III. Officially, the Reformation went into effect in 1537. In Norwegian historical chronology, we count 1537 as the end of the late Middle Ages and the beginning of the early modern period. All Norwegians who own a metal detector are keenly aware of this year because anything that is older than 1537 is automatically state property and has to be turned into the museum. Anyway, Catholic elements would survive in folk religion for centuries to come, and many of the old Catholic holidays were not formally abolished until the so-called Feast Day Reduction of 1771. But some of these holidays, such as Michaelmas, continued to be important among the peasantry just as they had been in the Middle Ages, and just as whatever came before it probably had been. In the modern Gregorian calendar, uh, Michaelmas falls on September 29th, serving as a sort of harvest festival with a lot of non-ecclesiastical beliefs and practices associated with it. Elements that may or may not be ancient, but blended together in a sort of melange of indigenous folk beliefs and uh, Christian mysticism. To attempt to synthesize what is true so-called pagan content is kind of a pointless endeavor, I think. And it's further complicated by the fact that the Reformation accidentally contributed to a new form of idolatry in Norway, one where images that were removed from formerly Catholic churches were taken in by the peasants who started to venerate them as domestic deities of sorts. It turns out that if you remove saints from the church, it creates a vacuum that needs to be filled somehow. For example, by worshipping effigies in your own home to secure prosperity for the farm. If you look at that without any context whatsoever, You'd think that the people living in these secluded valleys of inland Norway were pagans. But actually, these people were often deeply Christian. We're talking about people who uh, put sand in their shoes so they could suffer with Christ during Easter time. These people were extremely God-fearing. They just didn't have that concept of religious purity that we as modern people associate with being so-called part of a religion. And these are the same people who... At Christmas time, take out a little wooden man that they've been hiding in a cupboard for the rest of the year, and they serve him beer, and they hide him from the vicar because they know that uh, this is frowned upon by the clergy. But it's not a secret, it's not like they're living in fear of punishment for doing this, it's just one of the many things that they have to do to secure predictability in a chaotic and dangerous world. To live in pre-industrial society is to have to negotiate and compromise between many different forces. I think idolatry in Norwegian peasant society is a topic deserving its own episode, actually, so I'm not going to continue down that tangent, because I have many other tangents to go on today. We've established so far that uh, many Scandinavian Yuletide traditions, including mumming, has been strongly affected by the modernization of Christmas that crept out of the cities during the, uh, let's call it the Victorian period, even though it doesn't really apply to the cultural context. Actually, that's not true. The Victorian image of Christmas did have a direct effect on the Yuletide also in Scandinavia, as I think is probably quite obvious. Lily Weiser All, in her treatise on the Yulebuck and the Father Christmas tradition in uh, Norway, states that uh, the reputation of these urban uh, bourgeois practices usually traveled ahead of them. So by the time that they reached the peasantry, 
they had already kind of adapted to vernacular tradition, at least conceptually, which is why uh, there is such an overlap between uh, ideas about Father Christmas or Santa Claus in Scandinavia and um, more indigenous folkloric concepts. Um, a lot of this also has to do with the postcard industry and the whole, um, well, the whole commercialization of Christmas time in the late 1800s and early 1900s. That was basically a whole little boom right there. And it has drastically uh, changed uh, the Scandinavian perception of Yule or Christmas into something that um, many people are guilty of all the time today, uh, assuming that uh, entirely modern Christmas traditions that would have been economically unviable and often just logistically impossible uh, prior to the Industrial Revolution, are in fact remnants of the good old Yuletide, that uh, at the core, the holiday is the same as it ever was. Conjuring this idea that uh, whatever we do on Christmas is uh, some kind of uh, atavism from the pagan past. Like that the Christmas ham was originally uh, sacrificed to Freyr on the solstice or some utter bullshit like that. Reality probably is that uh, many Scandinavians ate fish like other Catholics for centuries until we could uh, uh, afford to do uh, otherwise, either because of the fucking Reformation or, you know, we could just tell the Pope to go fuck himself if he had any issue with us eating meat in the Christmas season. Or later, because we could afford to uh, monetarily because of, uh, you know, uh, better standards of living. I mean, uh, along much of the Norwegian coast, the cod was... Uh, the central Christmas dinner within decades of me being born. A better measure of peasant opulence uh, throughout most of Scandinavian history would probably be uh, considering how much more butter they ate on Christmas or some shit like that. Now, in terms of anachronism, the idea that Christmas trees are somehow remnants of pre-Christian cult seems innocent compared to dumbass claims like Santa Claus being a fly agaric mushroom or, God forbid, Odin himself. But this line of speculation is itself centuries old. A great example of a point of convergence where pseudo-pagan speculation and early modern state puritanism in Denmark-Norway shares some common ground is Bishop Erik Pontopedan's treatise Feiekust til at utfeie den gamle surde, aka a broom by which to sweep out the old sourdough from 1736. The sourdough that Pontopidan is looking to sweep out are the remnants of paganism still believed to have a foothold in Denmark-Norway. And yes, he does count Catholic traditions as part of this pagan undergrowth. Pontopidan seems like a bit of a grouch, or maybe I should say Grinch, as he paints the realm as a land populated by crypto-pagan drunks. His treatise goes through a range of abominable heathen tendencies in society, especially those tied to the holidays of the year. He critiques St. John's night celebrations, drinking parties, card games, even the specific hoots and hollers popular among the Danes, accusing them of invoking Jupiter. The Norwegians on their end, he says, have the terrible habit of using the phrase Thor God as an exclamation, which I think we should probably bring back, honestly. But worse yet, the Norwegians drag his name back up from hell to display him among the Christians and pollute the holy baptism by naming their children after this awful idol with common, good Norwegian names like Tor, Torstein, Torkil, Torben, Torlak, etc. He says that the appropriate response for any priest would be to physically assault the parent who tries to name their child after heathen gods. 
He also dedicates a lengthy section to the excesses of Christmas games. And here we see a few familiar tropes in regards to speculations about the origins of certain traditions. Of course, instead of exoticizing with the intent of affirming these traditions, he is looking to undermine them. For instance, he ties St. Lucy's Day to a seemingly made-up holiday in the honor of Frigg or Freya. He also reproduces a theory that he gets from the Danish polymath Olaus Wormius, who's noteworthy if you're a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, as the first Latin translator of the Necronomicon, but that's a digression. Anyway, from Wormius he gets that Christmas games apparently originates in the Roman Saturnalia celebrations. Why is that, you ask? Well, the folk etymological argument goes that the barbarian dunces of Scandinavia failed to understand the theological nuances of the holiday, and named it Yule, in honor of Julius Caesar, of course. Another trope, still recognizable in contemporary Yuletide discourse, is the idea that customs involving animals are fossilized recollections of animal sacrifices. And here he mentions something called the Yulebuck, stating that, quote, the Yulebuck, for which those of the fearful children's years still shake and tremble, struck with a sort of panicked fright. He doesn't say exactly what the Yulebuck does, but we're going to get to that later. He then goes on to discuss the limitless first and gluttony that happens in the Yuletide season, all in the name of superstition. And he uses an interesting metaphor here. He says that uh, the, the merrymaking is kind of like a makeup that covers up how grim and bad it actually is. Though I gotta say, it all sounds like a damn fine time to me. In a later section of the treatise on the celebrations of the Shrovetide, he treats masks and mumming more directly, because this is, of course, a, um, a time of carnivals. Here he uh, repeats some arguments from some German Protestant that masquerades in fact derive from the devil himself as he was the first to ever don a disguise back in the Garden of Eden. I don't think it would be fair to say that this is the default Christian position on things. This is probably a better reflection of certain schools of thought within Protestantism. As a contrast, Orthodox Christians in the Levant and the Caucasus, for instance, celebrate the feast day of St. Barbara with masquerading traditions of their own. In this case, symbolizing the different costumes that Barbara had to don when she was avoiding persecution by the Romans, who were then, of course, you know, not big fans of Christianity quite yet. But still, Pontopidon is very much a pietist of his age in the 18th century. So as the good Protestant he is, he thinks that every Christian should remove themselves from all that fluff, basically. Carnivals then become emblematic of his view of paganism, and serves as a sort of metaphor for how paganism deceives people by donning a false exterior. Furthermore, against the practice of mumming, he quotes the Old Testament in a way that um, inadvertently kind of reveals what's going on. <clears throat> a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Such ritualized cross-dressing, of course, is a well-known technique in masquerades and mumming, as it helps to conceal your identity. Puntopidon assaults many other customs and elements of folk religiosity throughout the treatise, inadvertently documenting them for your enjoyment in the process, and they're all quite interesting, but not very relevant to this episode. The point is that according to pietist ideals, any idea of fun held by the peasantry is fundamentally unwholesome. Sometimes Pontopidon just comes across as the spiritual ancestor of Tipper Gore. And I might as well be reading an 80s screed railing out against heavy metal. There's this church lady quality to it that seems perennial. Yet, in its historical context, this completely negative and infantilizing perception of the peasantry and its culture is characteristic of Protestant thinkers and elites in the Age of Enlightenment. 
but of course it would later be a paradigm shift towards romantic nationalism in the 1800s, where the upper classes, who had been pissing on the peasantry for centuries, suddenly started looking at them as a source of authentic identity that had to be protected and recorded. A lot of the misconceptions remain the same, but are now instead viewed in romantic light. There have, of course, always been some undercurrents, but if you want to hear about the early history of Nordic antiquarianism, I suggest you listen to the episode on Tormod Torfeus. Now, in recent years, masquerades and mumming have been the subject of a renaissance in popular culture, but also through renewed interest in regional folklore more generally. The most famous figure, perhaps being the Teutonic Krampus and the Pershten traditions of the Alpine regions, in the mainstream, it seems that people have claimed them as these kind of uh, naughty symbols of subversion and resistance, with a scope that is often quite far off from their origins. And as a result, they become kind of uh, corny. You know, there's kind of a scary clownification going on of the Krampus figure. Mind you, when Pontopidon published his anti-fun manifesto in 1736, mummery and carnivals and Christmas games had already been illegal in Denmark-Norway for well over a hundred years. But nobody gave a shit. The reason for the ban wasn't because of its allegedly pagan contents either, but because the crown considered it a nuisance and disturbance to have people merrymaking in the streets like that. It was associated with promiscuity, prostitution, drunkenness and gambling, but it was hardly possible to enforce this ban even in the cities, and in the countryside and provinces, things just continued as they always have and always will. In the valleys, fjords and mountains far away from Copenhagen, the people who lived with the tradition of Yuletide masquerades obviously had a completely different perception of things than that of the urbanized Puritan. Also, even though mumming is carnivalesque and um, very crude, almost by nature, the purpose is to encourage good deeds and proper behavior, enforce taboos, and reaffirm the status quo. By means of widespread chthonic terror, perhaps, but the status quo nonetheless. There's a tendency in the modern mind to not be able to appreciate that things can and do have coinciding qualities that seem at first glance contradictory. People fail to realize that these contradictions in fact reaffirm each other. In folk traditions, the more unlikely and bizarre something is, the more power it might actually have. Its absurdity underlines its power, creating the image quite efficiently of something that should not exist. That is why, for instance, historical ideas about sorcery and witchcraft seem to always have an element of the carnivalesque to it. Sorcerers are funny, they laugh where other people cry, and they see logic and connections in things that don't make sense to anybody else. Historical depictions of witchcraft features horrifying images like chickens hauling timber as if they were draft horses, or witches who ride cats backwards. There really aren't many black goats with big red eyes though that is exactly the sort of demonic entity that popular culture insists you should be afraid of. That exact simplicity and one-dimensionalness has led to the sort of dick-flattening that poor Krampus has been subjected to in recent years. The more realistically scary you try to make something look, the less scary it becomes. A sock puppet will arguably, due to its uncanniness, always be more effectful and frightening than a thousand-dollar mask. Arguably, this delegation of uh, creatures of folklore to one-dimensional and demonic realm is something that the modern consumer has in common with Eric Pontopidon, who likewise reduces this character gallery to a set of demonic caricatures of what they actually are. Krampus, of course, used to be the bogeyman companion of Saint Nikolaus, who uses threats and terror to inspire deeds and good behavior. Now he's just a scary clown who might as well be tattooed with a blunt in his mouth across a juggalo's back. 
that's a fate I wouldn't even wish upon my worst enemy. Another thing that has been the bane of local mumming traditions is, of course, Halloween. Now, I suppose Halloween is a folk holiday. It is a venue for mumming, or at least it's mumming adjacent. I mean, it's a masquerading tradition, is it not? And it's one that contains a lot of carnivalesque elements and imagery that we can easily consider kind of ur-pagan. If you remove a lot of the plastic tinsel and uh, modern consumerism attached to it, which, of course, you know, consider the time we're living in, uh, and just strip it back to the bare bones, it still has this strongly ghoulish folkloric engine under the hood, I think. And in many areas where it's been established in recent years, it seems to have replaced some of the local traditional customs. It has done this very efficiently, and I think part of the reason for this is that many local traditions have always been adaptable. Folklore is always in flux and uh, is susceptible to uh, current trends and fashions. Obviously, I am a grumpy and swiftly aging man who is perpetually out of step with the times. So, of course, I would rather pick the old traditions over the new Halloween. But, I mean, I don't really have a say in this, do I? After uh, ending up migrating to America, uh, as the fates would have it, you know, I've kind of come to embrace Halloween in ways that I probably wouldn't if I had stayed back in Scandinavia. Where I think its presence is a little bit more disruptive, you know, in an old man yells at cloud kind of way. And nevertheless, something that, you know, you kind of have to make peace with because it's here to stay. I can be unapologetically a snob about certain things, but I try to have some self-awareness about when I'm being just a snob and not offering anything else. But I think this concludes the most discussion-heavy part of this episode. In the next segment, we're going to focus more on specific folk traditions. This includes both ritual behavior and masquerading traditions and their relation to specific figures and creatures of uh, Scandinavian folklore. So coming up next, we're going to be Nissa and Tomptemaxing to the extreme. a wee boy up in the fjords. Halloween was largely something that uh, you knew from uh, watching TV. You know, this thing that they celebrated across the pond in America. And I'm not gonna lie, I found the idea very attractive. But there was no tradition to speak of. No trick-or-treating. What we did instead was this thing called going Yulebuck. This is a fairly late-stage mumming tradition that has taken on characteristics of uh, caroling, basically. We basically dress up as this uh, thing called a nisse, which is uh, sometimes translated as gnome, though that does not really convey necessarily exactly uh, what the nisse is. And what exactly the nisse is, is indeed a complicated question. In the incarnation we're talking about here, I think that there are some similarities to be had with the Icelandic Yule Lad tradition, 
uh, Julasvenar. And indeed, there are parts of Norway where uh, these uh, Julbuck uh, mummers are referred to as Julasvenar. There's quite a bit of overlap between the Icelandic and the uh, Norwegian tradition, but I didn't grow up in Iceland, so I'm really not the right person to talk about that. However, if you're familiar with the Icelandic tradition, then you're probably going to recognize some of these similarities throughout the episode. Now, to go Yulebuck is a pretty simple and formulaic ritual, one that bears many similarities to trick-or-treating, but with more emphasis on performance because of the caroling. So you're kind of um, making an exchange, which I think is an important aspect to it. The entire thing basically consisted of us going from house to house, singing Christmas carols, and in exchange we would receive uh, fruits like, I don't know, oranges and mandarins, and chocolate and cookies. It's structured in such a way that uh, the treats act as payment for the performance, but the original idea is that the mummers represent these uh, supernatural agents uh, who have to be appeased. There's nothing in the modern Yulebuck tradition itself that indicates this. It's never verbally expressed, and I don't think that many Norwegians think like that. Parents tend to perceive it as a uh, cute and innocent Christmas pageant. But it becomes obvious that this is the underlying idea when you look at the tradition in a long-term perspective, because that element of appeasement is very much present in the earlier sources for the custom. The term Yulebuck, or Yule Goat, is an indicator of what the tradition used to look like back before it was simply a holiday pastime for kids. Back then, the mummers represented ancestors, ghosts, or various trollish figures who harassed the household, making a racket, banging on the windows, howling and shrieking, hiding their faces and distorting their voices to avoid recognition. And they won't leave until you give them tribute, kind of like protection money. And to satisfy them, you have to give them beer or liquor and tobacco. If these figures, these entities, do not receive their due in the fashion that tradition dictates, uh, then terrible things might happen. You know, Christmas is uh, supposed to be a time where no expense is spared, and you're extra charitable to everybody. In Scandinavia, it's the most barren part of the year, and a time where dreadful and fantastic things happen, and where all the ghosts and goblins are out and about. So if the Yule Lads or the Yule Buck or whatever does not get their due, uh, they carry Yuletide off with them. And subsequently, you lose all of the blessings uh, that you would otherwise gain from the sacred season, which may have all sorts of implications for the coming year. You want to reach next Yuletide with not less than you had the year before, at least. To address why we would dress up as little Nissen gnome thingies, I think it suffices to say that Christmas in Scandinavia, like anywhere else, is a chaotic mishmash of different but similar motifs that melt together in idiosyncratic ways. Originally, the entity we call Anissa, or Tomte in Swedish, or by a variety of different other names, was not automatically just a Christmas spirit, but a spirit that toils on the farm all year but receives special attention on Christmas because Christmas represents the complete end of the work year, among other things. Christmas was a time when you also paid your farmhands, often articles of clothing, and gave them extra treats for their efforts. The Nissa is basically a supernatural farmhand, and he needs payment and recognition, or else he might start murdering and mutilating animals as well as people on the farm. Um, obviously, when I was a kid, this was a children's activity. As I already said, we received oranges and cookies, not aquavit and cigarettes. Uh, that wasn't always the case previously. Uh, at the very least, it was usually the older children, or maybe even the farmhands. So the people who were mumming were often at least adolescent, in many cases fully adult. Kids gradually started taking over in the late 1800s, like 1890, up to about 1920s. And the demise of this as the main Yuletide masquerade, of course, coincides with adoptions of stuff like Christmas trees and uh, a Father Christmas tradition. Uh, the uh, Father Christmas tradition 
uh, Julenissen in Norway is uh, also quite different from the um, what I imagine is the case throughout most of the world, at least the English-speaking world, uh, in that, uh, you know, in America, uh, Santa Claus comes at night. He's unseen. He never shows himself except for, like, at the mall <laughs> or in the public square or some event or something. In Scandinavia, the equivalent figure uh, physically comes into your home on Christmas Eve after Christmas dinner. And Christmas Eve, of course, is the main event in Scandinavia as well. Christmas Day is for lounging around. But uh, Father Christmas, or Julenissen, has an odd tendency to appear maybe uh, after Dad has had his uh, third aquavit of the evening and has excused himself to the bathroom and so, tragically, never seems to see Julenissen. Julenissen, of course, comes with presents for big and small and, in many regards, is quite different from his indigenous predecessors. Even his namesake folkloric entity, the Nissa, has a completely different demeanor and temper from that red-faced fucker who lives in the North Pole. And uh, unlike Julenissen, the household Nissa who lives in the barnyard or in the stables or in the burial mound or wherever local tradition dictates, demands recognition, payment and appeasement. While Julenissen, of course, rewards people for their good behavior throughout the year. The fact that the Scandinavian equivalent to the Santa Claus does come into the house on Christmas Eve in front of the entire family is probably something that was facilitated by the fact that uh, Scandinavians were already used to different sorts of mumming and masquerading traditions where they do exactly this, whether it's on Christmas Eve itself or some other significant date during that time. In Scandinavia and beyond, there's been a whole range of different mumming traditions that took place in and around Christmas time, sometimes with drastic differences in form and content. One being the Stjernegutter, or Star Boys, literally. Um, I think the English term is Star Game, not to be confused with uh, another game by the same name, of a uh, <clears throat> more sinister tradition. The Star Games being much more uh, nativity-centered, you know, the Three Kings and whatnot. But long story short, the Yule Buck, as I knew it as a child, was kind of a mishmash of different uh, caroling and masquerading traditions that were popular in Scandinavia and had been metabolized into um, modern Scandinavian society. Just a fun and cheery little thing that kids do around Christmas time. We're gonna dwell on uh, the fact that you would dress up as these Nissa things uh, in a little bit, but uh, I want to point out that um, in some parts of Norway, um, you didn't necessarily dress up as Nissa, you could also conceal your identity in, in other ways, and that is, um, that aspect of concealing your identity was kind of lost by the time uh, that I was uh, young, but um, it still did remain uh, residually in other local traditions up until, well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if kids do Yule Buck anymore. But I did find some newspaper articles from the early 2000s referencing um, a southern Rogalan tradition of, uh, of Lucy, uh, which I talked about in um, previous uh, Yuletide specials, which is this more like demonic entity that uh, comes around uh, Lucy night, like St. Lucy's night. Not to be confused with the Lucia traditions of uh, Sweden, which happen at the same time and are clearly more an um, urban, upper-middle-class, bourgeois phenomenon related to continental Christian Yuletide mystery plays with St. Lucy as this 
bringer of light figure. The Lucy of Norwegian folklore is anything but an angelic figure uh, in this sense. She's an ogress, she's dark and demonic, and she comes around Christmas time to scare people straight, basically. In West Norway, she's often the hag who leads the wild hunt. And in County Rogaland, a bit south of where I'm from, the Yulebuck mumming tradition is associated with her, complete with more monstrous masks, for instance. So I'd like to stress here that uh, Nissa is not necessarily what we refer to as a gnome, but but it's kind of adjacent. It's a brownie, maybe, is a better translation. There's some confusion regarding the relationship uh, between the Nissa and uh, Nissen, who is Santa Claus, uh, sometimes specifically referred to as Jule Nissen, to um, differentiate him from the regular Nissa. Uh, but that doesn't really clear anything up, because um, in modern times, people do tend to associate these household, or should I say barnyard spirits, with uh, the Yuletide anyway, because that is when you pay extra attention to all of the little helpers around your farm, be they animals or servants or farmhands, or supernatural farmhands, which is basically what the Nissa is. And ancestors as well, there's also that aspect to it. The relationship is kind of uh, complicated and diffuse in the Norwegian mentality. Um, it will cause some cognitive dissonance if you bring this up. For one thing, these two creatures are not the same. And yet, in strange ways, they do overlap with very few clear distinctions. I don't think anybody conceptualizes Santa Claus or Julenissen, the Julenissa, uh, as being the same figure as the domestic household brownie Nissa. But the Coke bottle variety Santa Claus in Scandinavia definitely bleeds into the former and vice versa, due to some kind of strange motif attraction. Sometimes Santa Claus is, I guess, depicted as having several Nissar, plural, as his consorts and helpers, kind of like elves in the Anglosphere, but uh, a Nissa is not an elf very important uh, distinction here. In fact, I don't really consider contemporary Christmas elves to be elves at all, either. And the American elf that you might have seen on TV is absolutely not a Nissa. But anyway, that connection between Father Christmas and the Nissa as a collective, sort of, uh, obviously is not very old at all. It, it's something that appears in, in kind of the, the urbanized Christmas celebrations at the turn of the 18 and 1900s as part of kind of, I don't know, like this Victorianization of uh, the holiday. Physiognomically speaking, or should I say physiognomically speaking, uh, the Nissa looks kind of like an old man about the height of a child, or he may simply look like a young boy. But he can also be smaller, and it's sometimes understood that he can change his appearance or vanish at will. The Nissa is certainly one of the more sympathetic figures of Nordic folklore, which is notoriously a mythos otherwise full of dangerous and untrustworthy entities. In anything but name, the Nissa can almost be considered a sort of domestic deity who helps keep the farm and household healthy and prosperous. But this is achieved only if the household maintains an acceptable moral standard, works hard, treats the animals well, etc. He's basically the, the Protestant work ethic made flesh and blood. Now let's address the term Nissa before we go on. Nissa is the common term for this creature in today's Denmark and Norway. It is most likely a corruption of Nils, which is the Scandinavian variant of Nikolaus. But the connection here to Saint Nikolaus may actually kind of be more accidental than anything. I know this might sound strange given the fact that both of these figures are associated with Christmas, 
But the fact remains that the Nissa is not specifically a figure that's only active around Christmas. It is the time when you give him more special attention because it's a time of thanksgiving and increased hospitality, as well as a general season of uh, supernatural hyperactivity. Nils was and remains a popular name in Denmark and Norway, and it seems reasonable that the derivative Nissa was just a pet name or euphemism for the small, invisible man, who, by the way, went by a variety of different regional terms historically. It's just that Nissa has since become the dominant one. The Norwegian philologist Ottar Grønvik has, uh, let's say, different theory about the origins of the word Nissa. Grønvik basically argues that instead of being simply a Scandinavian adaption of the male personal name Nicholas, that it derives from an unattested Old Norse word Nidsi, which would supposedly mean little ancestor. This would be a very compelling etymology if there were any evidence to back it up, but there isn't really, except for circular reasoning. Grønvik was already convinced that the Nissa represents a form of ancestor worship anyway, and by the way, he's not alone in thinking this. In short, he came up with this interpretation because it suits him. And if it were true, it would conveniently reinforce the perspective that he already holds. This is kind of the academic equivalent of cutting somebody's legs off because the bed is too short. Other than that, there may well be an element of ancestor worship in the whole wider complex of Nissa and Tomte traditions across Scandinavia. Uh, depicting the Nissa as a form of corrupted ancestor worship is also a very dominating tendency in, uh, how should I say, contemporary popular science in Scandinavia. So if there's anybody listening uh, to this episode 200 years from now, anthropologists in your era will probably consider that to be a very typical perception of the Nissa in the 21st century. And for all I know, that might still be the popular explanation in that future point in time. And there's plenty of good evidence to suggest that, in fact. But now I'm getting way ahead of myself. All of this being said, saying that that is what the Nissa truly is, that's a little bit too simplistic. One of our earliest mentions of the word Nissa, Hans Ström, in uh, 1762, compares the Nissa to the Roman Lares, which is, of course, a domestic deity. But his general characterization is that uh, a Nissa is uh, something that uh, looks like a little boy, spends uh, most of its time in the barn, where it's very beneficial to the animals living there, but cannot stand any form of noise or racket. In some dictionaries of vernacular language, Nissa is simply defined as an invisible spirit, while Hans Jakob Wille, in his uh, geographical uh, description of uh, Upper Telemark, says that they are small, like children, dressed in grey clothes with a little cap on their head, and their scalp is always wet, strangely enough. Generally speaking, there's a huge regional variation on, in terms of little attributes and physiognomical features that, uh, that the Nissa or Tomte may have in Norway, Denmark, and Sweden. They help those whom they like, but they are vengeful and hateful against those who subvert them. And Nissa is often credited if the livestock on one farm is particularly fat and rich, especially if the animals on neighboring farms are scrawnier. This is because the Nissa is sometimes believed to steal feed from neighboring farms during his endless toil. A certain Christian Braunmann Tullin, in the middle of the 1700s, states uh, in a more fabulous account that uh, the farms with scrawnier cattle may in fact be inhabited by people with stronger faith, who do not have a Nissa because they shun such devilry. This particular account is uh, written in the form of a fable, and uh, the author was a poet, so it's fair to say it's not representative of much, except perhaps his own negative views of these so-called superstitions. Grunvik, you know, the guy with the speculative etymology, 
does sketch out a few helpful points to identify where the old Nyssa is different from the new so-called Nyssa, which for simplicity's sake I will just call Santa Claus. 1. The Nyssa lives on the farm year-round. Santa Claus only visits on Christmas Eve and maybe some Christmas parties as children's entertainment. 2. The old Nyssa did physical work and helped the farm year-round, especially in the barn and stable. Santa Claus does no such thing. 3. The Nyssa receives a gift in the form of a meal on Christmas. Santa Claus hands out presents. The old Nyssa is small but extremely strong. He is dressed in simple grey clothes and a red hat, like peasants do. But he is not normally visible to people. Santa Claus, on the other hand, is large, and historically he is dressed in a flamboyant red cape and whatnot. He enters the house in a grand display and uh, speaks to the kids. And perhaps most importantly, and this is the fifth and final point that Grunvik describes here, the old Nyssa was part of a living folk belief. People actually believed in the existence of the Nyssa as an unseen household spirit, and treated him in a particular way so that he would not harm them. Santa Claus is a fable told for children, a theatrical figure used to entertain or sell something. He is a socially accepted fiction, and in a way you can probably say the same about mumming to a certain degree, as a ritualized drama in which people willingly suspend their disbelief. But this is of course also an inherent part of any masquerading tradition. The same applies of course to the Yulebuck tradition as well. Nyssa has in recent times become something of an umbrella term for what was originally a heterodox set of folk beliefs around Norway and Scandinavia. In West Norway, the Nyssa was often referred to by the term Garvoren, Garsvoren, or just Voren, basically meaning the ward of the farm. Other names and variants exist all over Scandinavia. In Sweden, they often call him Tomtegubben or Tomten, effectively the farm plot man. The Nyssa seems to be able to adapt to basically any socio-economic niche as well, as long as it's within the bounds of peasant tradition. In northern Norway, for instance, he often lives on ships and boats instead of farmhouses. In order to maintain the unwritten contract between the Nyssa and the household, it is necessary to appease him on Christmas Eve. And it's seen as him basically getting his due. He's getting paid for the work that he's put in over the past year. As we previously touched upon, it is commonly argued that the Nissa cult, if you want to call it that, is a remnant of ancestor veneration. But those discussions often feel a little bit historicist and evolutionistic. And by this I mean it has kind of a hang-up on what the Nissa supposedly developed from, rather than focusing on what the Nissa is and was in our sources. It also disregards the actuality that folklore is profusely non-linear, and we constantly inflect our own reception and impose on it. However, even as he appears to us, the Nissa definitely has some ancestor-like characteristics, including the fact that his purpose seems to be overseeing tradition and continuity. The Nissa, or Tomte, is clearly a patchwork of different local vernacular traditions that have been gradually homogenized, and this was of course accelerated by commodification, by selling trinkets and postcards and uh, storybooks that depicted the Nissa in a certain and very specific way. So the modern Nyssa, in many ways, is curated. But below that red cap of his is uh, an iceberg that goes quite a bit deeper. Different regions have different opinions about where he lives on the farm, for instance. There are local names for the Nyssa that stress his association with various parts of the estate. Tun Kallen, for example. There is no English equivalent for the term Tun. It basically means the negative space that is created by a cluster of buildings or farmhouses. But I think if we really want to simplify, we could probably translate it as 
farmyard man or something like that. Then you have tuftekallen. Tuft refers to the base or foundation of a house, but usually after the house is removed, so a, a ruin almost. Indentations and little bumps in the landscapes that are traces of previous buildings that have long since rotted away are called tuft in Norwegian. So tuftekallen could be translated as the building remnant fella. Sometimes this entity was just referred to as Tuften, or the Building Remnant Thing for short. That of course creates the impression that the Tuftekal represents the original inhabitant of the farm, who would often have been the ancestor, or would have at least have been perceived to be the ancestor of the people living there. If you asked any Norwegian on the street if the Nissa was a ghost, they would probably shake their head and say no. There are tons of ghosts or ghost-like entities in Scandinavian folklore, but most would agree that the Nissa, as he is conceptualized, is not one of those. This is not necessarily so clear in the sources. I mentioned that the Nissa sometimes appears to dwell in building remains around the property. Sometimes he also seems interchangeable with a figure called Haugkallen or Haugmunden, that is, the barrow man or barrow farmer. Also, Haugbukken, the mound buck, as if it wasn't complicated enough. So Haugkallen or Haugmunden, the barrow man or mound man, appears to play the role of Nissa in everything but name. I'm not saying they are the same, and in some cases they even inhabit the same space. There's both a barrow man and an Nissa on a farm, but I think that that's more eccentric, and I, and I may be wrong for certain regions, but for the most part the Högebunde and the Nissa are not seen in the same room together at the same time, if you catch my drift. Burial mounds of varying antiquity were sometimes used as boundary markers or were otherwise part of the geography of some farms. It was imagined that the mound was the resting place of the original settler who cleared the land and still watched over it. Another name for this figure is Gubunden, or the good farmer, and similar names are also applied to the Nissa. Just as the Nissa can also live in mounds or bumps in the landscape, as well as sheds and barns, the barrowman or good farmer or whatever you want to call him, sometimes dwells in the woodshed or takes lodging in the stairs leading to the attic on Christmas night. By all accounts, this relates to similar ideas about mound dwellers in Old Norse literature, which is vaguely similar to how burial traditions are in certain countries to this day, where they put their relatives up on the hillsides with a good view of, uh, of the village or properties uh, so that they may look after them after they're dead. There's a very famous Norwegian folk song called Høgebunden about exactly this, where the original farmer as a revenant comes and haunts the current farmer to complain about how his kids are making too much noise and, and running around, disrespecting the property, breaking stuff, etc. In regards to sacrifices or offerings to the Nissa, in the interest of keeping perhaps your Nissa from going bananas, I'll just repeat this. You give him special treatment every Christmas when he's given his Yuletide meal. This is historically porridge and or beer or liquor or both, which is either brought out and left wherever he lives or poured out on a particular old root or stone. Overall, the Yuletide was a holiday where you shared extra with everybody, including the ghosts of dead ancestors and animals. Rodents and other vermin enjoyed amnesty, and in many cases they were even fed. In many places they would leave the food out on the table overnight for the dead to enjoy, and the leftovers would be mixed together and used to feed the animals. They even gave horses beer to drink, as we've discussed on previous occasions. An interesting aspect of this esoteric Nissaism are the many cautionary tales warning against not just merely causing offense to the Nissa, but the harm that may come to non-believers if they fail to carry through with their promised offerings. 
One story from Telemark recounts how a farmhand tasked with putting out porridge in the barn decided to eat the porridge himself. The Nissa then appeared and folded him into one of the windows. Then there's another case where a maid found it silly to give porridge to the little barnyard man, whom, you know, she didn't consider to actually exist, and then took the porridge and ate it herself. Then, lo and behold, the Nissa arrives and forces her to dance with him until she can barely walk. If a Nissa is not happy in a specific location, it may choose to leave the farm and then take all of its luck with it. Strangely, a similar belief was also attached to a certain species of non-venomous and relatively docile snake that exists in Scandinavia. No, you heard correctly. You don't have to rewind. I said snake, because there are fucking Nissa snakes as well. And the specific scientific name for this sort of snake is uh, Natrix natrix. In English called grass snake, in Norwegian called buorm, meaning shed or barn snake, or simply snook, snake in Swedish. In parts of Norway and Sweden, and Finland as well, I understand, these snakes were believed to keep sorcery and trollishness away and generally improve the output of the farm, especially concerning livestock. These snakes often nest in dung heaps and cellars, and having one on your farm was considered good fortune. You must under no circumstance kill it, because that will take away the luck of the farm. So, so far it's kind of Nissa adjacent, don't you think? But, you know, just an interesting coincidence. Well, as it turns out, it's not. If you had such a snake on your farm, it was customary to give it bowls of milk, which apparently it drank. Though it was also believed that the snake would go into the cow shed and help itself, sucking milk straight out of the cow's udders. Sometimes these snakes are reported to live in or under the house. Hence, a common name for grass snake was house worm or house snake. For instance, there is a story about a woman whom I suppose lived sometime in the 19th century in Valor in East Norway, who kept a grass snake under her stoop, which she called Huslöcka, that is, the fortune of the house. That's the snake's name. This snake apparently had the habit of following her into the kitchen once a day for its daily ration of a saucer of milk before it slithered back under the stoop. Then there's a story from Numedal about some people who uh, kept a serpent that would uh, come and go from the house as it pleased and eat sour cream, and in the end was uh, so fat that it was quite hideous to behold, according to the source. Then when the farm later got new tenants, they didn't care for the snake at all, and in exchange for their neglect, the snake avenged itself and took away all their fortune with cattle. They became completely useless afterwards, it says. This is all very Nissa-like, of course, but there are some seemingly irreconcilable differences between the Nissa and these house snakes. For one thing, a Nissa is rarely seen. Typically, you only see traces that it leaves behind, or you might hear it or uh, sense it in some way. But apparently, looks about the size of a young school-aged child, if you do see it. Though I want to say, just because I neglected to say it before, that the Nissa may be unseen because he possesses cloaking capabilities, and you can sometimes spot him if you peer through gaps or holes on certain pieces of equipment, like a sort of lens of in-betweens. Nevertheless, the Nissa is assumed to have human form, even though he can apparently change his appearance. However, in Sweden, these snakes are sometimes referred to as Tomte snakes, and you'll remember that Tomte is the regional name for this thing that we call Nissa in Norway and Denmark, and sometimes in Sweden they call Tomte Tomte Nissa. The earliest reference we have to the Swedish Tomte goes back as far as the 1300s, in the visionary revelations of St. Bridget of Sweden. In there, she talks about a farm where they don't go to church but worship these so-called Tomtagudi, Tomte gods, 
And in the same chapter, those same people are urged to believe in God and abandon the serpents whom they give offerings of milk and to not give offerings of cattle, swine, bread, wine, or other things to the tomtar. So are these snakes tomtar or are they just kind of different aspects of this pagan practice as far as she sees it? It seems that Bridget, at the very least, drew a comparison between such snakes and the worship of so-called tomta gods. And it's easy to see how people might connect those two if both are seen as protectors of the farm in some capacity. Furthermore, Olaus Magnus, in his History of the Nordic Peoples from 1555, writes, There are also house serpents, who are in the furthest north considered domestic deities. They get to drink cow or sheep's milk, play with the children indoors, and are often seen sleeping in the crib like sworn protectors. To disturb them is seen as blasphemy. And later in the same century, in 1592, the German Michael Heberer claims to have witnessed the following scene during a visit to a farm in Smolan. In this village we saw the house full of serpents, which stayed in stables and buildings and were quite large, but didn't do any harm. We were initially shocked by these poisonous animals, and didn't want to stay for this reason. Then said our companion, who knew the situation, that serpents occurred in this way not only here, but also several other places in those parts, and that the inhabitants were well used to them, and that they did them no harm, as long as you didn't harm them. As we were waiting for something to eat, the children sat on the floor and devoured their porridge. Then two serpents crawled over and ate with the children from the same dish. This caused such a disgust among us that we lost all appetite and desire to eat anything, but left for another village on fresh horses. Things keep getting stranger and stranger here, so now that I've dropped this aspect on you, how about a second helping? The Nissa as a sorcerer's familiar. In the parish of Vengne, also in Sweden, a neighbor accused a certain lay judge by the name of Thomas Hegvalds of being in possession of so-called tomtebessar, which are apparently also glossed dragdokkor. A dragdokka, or Norwegian dragdokke, is a puppet of sorts created from various ingredients, and then given life through supernatural means to serve a diabolical purpose. This is pretty much a variant of the belief in so-called milk hares or troll cats who are produced by similar means, from which of course the publishing wing of Brute Norse takes its name, Trollcat Press. In some ways, a nissa or tomte may seem to have an adjacent but less malicious function of a witch's familiar, with the significant exception that familiars such as troll cats and dradokkor are produced artificially and sent out by the sorcerer to steal from other people while the Nissa simply goes to other farms on his own accord, where he might steal feed for your animals without you even asking, sometimes getting into fights with the neighboring Nissa if there is one. However, since the Tomtebisse in that former case was referred to specifically as a Dradokke, or familiar, it seems that people may have drawn comparisons between the two on occasion. As for the Bisse in Tomtebisse, it's not exactly clear what this means. It might mean roughly the same as Gubbe in Tomtegubbe, in which case it really means Tomteman or something to that effect. A variant of Basse, which often refers to someone who is strong or stocky or rotund. But Bisse also occurs as a word meaning ragdoll. And in Finland, Bisse specifically refers to straw figures that are made for Christmas time. But I cannot speculate whether any of these really share the same etymology. If there are other beliefs about the Nissa that place him as the servant of a witch or sorcerer, then I am not aware of it. 
in terms of sleeping in the barn, getting into fights with other Nisser, and being highly territorial, this seems to also have fueled uh, the Nisser's association with cats in the popular imagination. Now before we move on, since I'm already talking about the Nissa, I might as well also talk about the true anti-Nissa of Norwegian folklore as well, namely the dwarf. Dwarves have gotten a raw deal in the codification of Scandinavian folklore. While they do appear in Norse mythology, the exact nature of what a dwarf is remains quite obscure in that context. Strangely enough, dwarves appear to have gone extinct in post-medieval Icelandic folk belief and people rarely hear about them in Norway as well. However, in the Norwegian context, that is mainly because, for whatever reason, dwarves just don't seem to enjoy the same attention as the Nissa, Hildurfolk, and other folkloric creatures do. But that's not really for lack of tradition about them, as Ingjall Reichsborn Tjennerud laments in his extensive study of the Norwegian dwarf tradition. One reason being that the belief often overlaps with the Nissa and Hildurfolk beliefs in ways that make it hard to categorize. As you probably know, Norway has a very rich tradition of what we might call fairy lore through the Huldur, the Huldur people, the Subterraneans, the Yonder folk, or whatever a given source might call them. Sometimes, in certain sources, there is a very close overlap between dwarves and hidden folk, or they are simply assumed to be the one and same. However, there are cases in certain pockets of Norway where dwarves are clearly very distinct figures who play a role quite like the Nissa if you turned everything upside down. According to these quite overlooked sources, dwarves invade barns where they suck the cows dry and cause disease. That dwarves cause disease is also something that we see in runic amulets from uh, the Viking Age and Middle Ages, so it's quite old. They stunt children's growth by stealing their food, they're afraid of the light, hate noise and disturbances in any form, and mock people's speech by imitating them. Hence, one term for echo in Norwegian is dvagmål, that is, dwarf speech. Unlike the Nissa, who only causes disturbances when provoked, the dwarf proactively leaves a trail of destruction in his wake. He castrates lambs, he squeezes two cows into the same collar, he throws potatoes at people, urinates on milkmaids, extinguishes the fire under the moonshine still, and hides under the bed. Two dwarves may play tug-of-war using an old lady as a rope. In one case, a dwarf is supposed to have thrown a knife straight into a girl's eye because she talked too much. Again, they don't like any disturbances, and they hate when people talk. But the good news is that dwarves are easily scared off by threats of physical violence, such as threatening them with a knife or an axe. There are even reports of people who apparently disposed of a dwarf by straight up killing him. In line with many old ideas about dwarves, they do lust after the fairer sex, and women should be wary that dwarves will try to climb into bed with them children that are born from such unions will be born disfigured or turn out to be red-haired gingers. Now we move on, or return, to the topic of the Yule Buck, or Yule Goat. As we've already addressed, leaving food out for the Nissa or for the dead, either inside or outside of the home, is a recurring thing all over Scandinavia for Christmas. In Sjönadal, in West Norway, there was the tradition that they left out two candles on the table along with scraps of the Christmas dinner. In this case, that was a lutefisk and milk soup, which is effectively a sort of thin rice porridge. But in this case, it is for the Yule goat, who supposedly comes in at night after the household has gone to sleep. Children are scared of the Yule goat, naturally, so universally the Yule goat was used to keep kids in awe and out of your hair in the build-up to the holiday. While the Yule goat is not malignant, 
It cannot stand misbehaving kids. Sometimes the Yule goat mummers would physically come into people's houses and creep people out. Other times the Yule goat would go to the window and scare people that way, creeping around corners and knocking on the walls. Yule goat or Yule buck are both mentioned all over Scandinavia, and it refers to several things. Least of all, it refers to a Yule goat that was slaughtered for Christmas to eat. This occurs, but it's very rare. Secondly, it refers to a sort of Christmas ornament made of straw in the shape of a goat, which is quite common these days. And then, of course, it's used about mummers, that is, people in disguise. They may or may not be disguised as a goat. As I told you, when I went Yule Buck as a kid, I went as a little Nissa, and the idea of dressing up as a goat was completely unknown to me at the time. The reason why it's called a Yule Goat, of course, is because that was the original costume. And that brings us to the last definition. And that is that the Yule Goat is a sort of Yuletide troll, or vette, a spirit, in the shape roughly of a goat that comes to visit during the holiday. It may appear either alone or with companions, and naturally, the mumming display is a representation of that Yuletide phantom. It is commonly believed that the entity inhabits the outfields or wilderness the rest of the year, and only makes itself seen in the Yuletide to demand appeasement. Other times it is said to dwell in the haystack or woodshed, and steps closer to the main farmhouse one pace every night in the weeks leading up to Christmas Eve. Even though Yulebuck was an activity for children back in my day, the original mumming tradition associated with it was something that grown-ups and young adults did. One thing we often see at the end of the lifespan of certain customs is that they uh, move on from the realm of the adults and they become children's games and stuff like that. And then children strangely become these uh, repositories for rejected knowledge, basically. This is exactly what's happened to most of the Scandinavian mumming traditions. And those who are justifiably concerned that it's vanishing often appeal to its place as part of a child's upbringing, specifically as something that's nice for the kids to do. It's better than Halloween because it lacks the consumerist angle and it also lacks the gore and violence that's implied. Whether that last part is actually true when it comes to the historical tradition, um, I'm gonna let you make up your own ideas as we approach the end of the episode. But the common justification anyway is that it's an un-Americanized form of children's entertainment that's traditional and local to the area. Obviously, I don't think anybody would do Mummer's Play if it wasn't entertaining, and it is. But the original tradition, insofar we can say anything is original, seems to have served much more of an explicit ceremonial role in the enforcement of the local mythos of the holiday, as well as encouraging specific values. If you go far enough back, of course, all of the vestments associated with the Yule Goat or Yule Buck would have been homemade. And even in my childhood, there was an element of reuse associated with it. The sentiment seems to be that it's supposed to be a little bit DIY. However, at the turn of the 19th, 20th century, people started also adopting papier-mâché masks, which could be bought in stores. Many of which would have been imported from Germany, where of course they represented Saint Nikolaus. Which, through some kind of motif attraction, of course, reinforces this idea that mummers can also represent these Nissa figures. But initially, of course, the masks were often thrown together kind of last minute. An old curtain with some eye holes and a face drawn with soot and red paint was as good a mask as any. Men might wear skirts and dresses, and some women wore men's trousers and jackets. They pretended to be travelers from far away, distorted their voices, and made crude gestures or witty remarks. The main goal is to keep your identity hidden for as long as you can, using whatever disguise, and of course you are to demand a little bit of food or drink. 
The people that you visit, of course, must oblige, or else the visitors will carry the Yuletide away with them. Though mumming can be associated with a specific season, that is not always the case. In parts of Norway, for instance, there is a very strong tradition of wedding mumming, where masked people would crash the wedding party, and a lot of the same stuff applies there. And it seems that they repurposed the same costumes for these different occasions. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned Michael Mass, the Catholic folk holiday that adopted many Scandinavian indigenous concepts and survived the Reformation. In Finland, they have this quite archaic holiday called Kekri that used to coincide with Michael Mass and celebrates the dead in a way that is quite similar to the position of Yule among Germanic-speaking Scandinavians. And since we also talked about the Nissa and his relationship to Santa Claus and the connection between the Nissa and the Yulebuck, well, here's another dimension. In Finland, Santa Claus, or Father Christmas, is actually simply called Yulebuck, Yulopukki. And obviously Finnish Yule, or Christmas, is quite similar to how it is in the rest of Scandinavia as well. As for the old-school Yule goat costumes, there are quite a few different sources to work with. Several wooden Yule goat masks do survive to our day. Some of these are carved just like human faces, but more iconic ones depict a goat's head. These come in different forms. Sometimes we only have sketches, and we have a lot of descriptions of masks that have not survived. But it's enough to deduce that the variation is large also here. On top of this, there's also quite a bit of photographic material. If we focus purely on the idea of the Yule goat as one or several mummers parading around in a goat's likeness, there are different ways to put such an outfit together. The simplest descriptions we have are of animal hides that are sewn together, and then some kind of horns or more usually imitations that are also attached to the outfit. They could use an old tapestry or a blanket or a sheepskin coat turned inside out. Horns might be actual goat horns or something like a pair of mittens on sticks. There are descriptions of two-pronged pitchforks with a horn serving as a face. More famous, of course, are the goat's heads which are carved out of wood and these may be painted or covered with wool or animal hide. They are attached to a long wooden shaft, allowing you to turn the head, extend and retract it. Often there was a hinged lower jaw connected to a piece of string or rope, allowing the jaw to snap. A description from Hallingdal goes that when the Yule goat entered, it looked like a big old hide that dragged itself along the floor. But then slowly, a pair of horns and ultimately the entire goat's head emerges from the skin as the goat rises up stretching up towards as it clacks and snaps its jaws and bites wildly at the rafter under the ceiling. The earliest description of a Yule goat in Norway, as far as I know, is from 1646, where it is called a raw goat, described as a disguised person with bedclothes attached to a wooden thing fashioned like thongs or pliers with which he scares the children. So here we must deduce that they're talking about one of these Yule goat heads with a snapping jaw. There are even cases where Yule goat masks are described as being fashioned with uh, steel and flint so that when the jaws snap, they produce sparks. How this was done exactly, I'm not quite sure. And I don't want to go completely wild here, but, um, you know, some might recall that the goats are associated with the Norse thunder god Thor, one of which uh, is called Tangnjostr, uh, which means uh, the teeth grinder. And there is actually a tentative case for ritual fire striking associated with Thor in the Viking Age. And lightning, of course, was identified as a form of fire in an age before electricity. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is completely impossible to prove or anything like that, but it's kind of... Let's just say that there's a tendency in our material to portray 
Thor's attributes as extensions of himself. Snorri explains, for instance, that uh, Thor's hammer can shrink and grow at will, and he hides it under his tunic. And in the myth where the hammer is stolen from him, well, he becomes a woman, doesn't he? In Swedish, they refer to thunder as oska, which comes from os ekia, and os ekia means god driving, indicating a variant belief in eastern Scandinavia that thunder is the sound of Thor driving his chariot. And he may or may not use his hammer to produce lightning, but in skaldic poetry, it also occurs that lightning is caused by the friction of his chariot driving. So it is, if nothing else, not completely insane to imagine that his teeth-grinding goats also produce sparks from their mouths. I argued in my master's thesis that his goats are basically emblematic of himself. Now, whether that means that there's any connection between Thor and the Yule Goat is a different matter. I would say it ticks more boxes than many other speculations about the supposedly pagan origins of this or that Scandinavian Christmas custom, but of course this is pure conjecture and could never possibly ever be proven. Especially since we have no concrete evidence that the Yule Goat tradition even stretches back that long. Another reason to be suspicious is that this is an anecdote from a time when people, theoretically, had access to Norse mythological texts in translation, so there might be some circular reception time magic going on here. Kind of Urpagan if you think about it. So that's something to ponder, but not something I'm really interested in overstretching, especially not after the spiel I gave you earlier. But yeah, let's not get too far off track. Um, regarding the Yule Goat, Yule Goats can appear in groups or singularly. In some cases, uh, the Yule Goat is only one of the mummers performing as a Yule Goat, while the masked entourage, who may be wearing different sorts of masks and costumes, are referred to as the Yule Bucks. And that is probably how the terminology came about, where it's acceptable to refer to people dressed up as little gnomes and other Christmas goblins uh, as Yule Bucks, without you know necessarily being goats and whatnot. Reports on the phenomenon in the early modern period often stresses the indecency of the charade, with revelers engaging in violence and destruction like the Wild Hunt. In southwest Norway, it is often in fact stated outright that the Yule Goat is part of the Oskore, that is, the Wild Hunt, which we talked about in a previous episode, um, specifically one of the, uh, the holiday specials of the Brute Norse podcast. It is said that the Yule Goat will take away those who did not wash themselves for Christmas, as well as those who did not acquire a new garment. And this may remind us of the Icelandic Christmas tradition of the Yule Cat, where children are taken away by a giant cat if they don't get new clothes for Christmas. The verb here in Norwegian is få, meaning to get, so receive or acquire, which speaking archaically uh, probably didn't really mean receiving articles of clothing as gifts for Christmas, but acquiring new clothes by whatever means necessary with the natural economy. It's considered good etiquette to have fresh clothes for Christmas. And this is worth mentioning because uh, originally this was not a money economy, so farmhands were paid partially with clothing. It's also worth noting here that it's often the farmhands or the oldest kids on the farm who play the part of the Yule Goat in these processions. So these are people who would be considered relatively young, but at least adolescent at the time. Before the Industrial Revolution, I think the average age of marriage for a man was about, yeah, I don't know, his late 20s or something like that. And he'd be working throughout his teens and 20s in anticipation of settling down. I mean, we're talking about peasant society in rural Norway, so, you know, not the urbanites who are marrying their boss's daughter at 22. So in some cases, we can imagine that uh, the guy invading your house on Christmas Eve is built like a fucking log cabin Rambo. 
In the case of Rogaland, close to my old stomping grounds, the biggest farmhand would put on the biggest dress he could and put on a special horned mask representing the ghastly yuletide troll known as Lucy, along with her masked entourage. Even the Sami have a tradition similar to the Yule Goat, except in their case it is the mean troll Stallo who is the centerpiece. Stallo is a fierce man-eater who lives in certain mountains. He rides a sled pulled by lemmings, and he is an occasional character in contemporary Sami children's television. So Stalo is a figure that Sami children and adults uh, have been closely familiar with for centuries, if not thousands of years. Because in some cases, Stalo is depicted as a legendary tax collector or warrior, sometimes dressed in, say, chainmail. Etymologically, his name appears tied to Stol, or steel, and he is associated with a Scandinavian figure called Stole. Many are and have been of the opinion that legends about Stalu are echoes of raids or other interactions with Germanic Scandinavians in the Viking era or Middle Ages. But as he emerges for the most part, uh, Stalu is for all intents and purposes a troll, both in behavior and ability. There are some sources that state that the Nwaidi, that is the main ritual specialist of the Sami, was able to create a Stalu from peat to act as a familiar. Sometimes people can turn into a Stalu or the Stalo can turn into different beings and things. He often pursues the Sami, and he's often fought to come from the underworld. So if the Sami defeat him in a duel, and he offers them his knife as a reward, this is a trick, because since Stalo is a subterranean being, his knife operates on subterranean logic, which means that it will turn against whoever wields it. Stalo also leads the Sami version of the Oskore, or Wild Hunt. And like their Germanic-speaking neighbors, the Sami considered Christmas Eve to be the most dangerous night of the year. Therefore, it is important that the space in front of the tent or cabin must be clear and tidy, or else Stalo and his entourage of mice and lemmings may get stuck. Stalo is thirsty after his yuletide journey, so he must always leave water for Stalo in the tent, or else he will drink the blood of the children or suck their brains out of their heads. The children must behave in the yuletide, or else Stalo will come and kill them. Stalo doesn't like noise, especially on Christmas Eve, and this is the main topic of many Stalo legends. One Christmas legend recounts how a bunch of kids were being noisy, so the moon came down and sat on their chopping block before it turned into a Stalo, then murdered all the kids and roasted them on the fire. The parents returned from church, and Stalo murders them as well. There are tons of stories about Stalo that go roughly like this. In one, he turns the kids into stone, and then the parents when they get home. In another one, he murders all the kids, then proceeds to cut off the dad's penis before he asks him why he raised such horrible kids, and then proceeds to do the same with the mother's breasts. They're all disturbingly creative in their carnage, but the result, as far as I can tell, always seems to be the same. But Stalo is also a central figure in the fun and games around Christmas. For example, there is, or was, apparently, a version of Blindfold Tag, I guess it's called Blind Man's Buff in English, which the Sami called Blind Stalo. In one very uh, meta legend, Stalo and his hag of a wife are chasing after a Sami lady all the way to camp. Once there, he proposes for the Sami encampment that they all play blind Stalo together out on a frozen lake, with Stalo himself, of course, playing the role of Stalo. But the Sami had cut a hole in the ice that, of course, the blindfolded Stalo falls into, and then they beat him over the head with his own club. He called to his wife for help, but she was in the tent together with the Sami women, who had put her drinking straw on the fire, so that when she leaned in to quench her thirst, she sucked the embers straight into her mouth and died. This follows a general tendency, of course, to describe trolls and such creatures as very gullible. Traditionally, 
the Sami also have a Christmas mumming tradition. But in this case, uh, the Yule buck or Yule goat uh, is Stalo. There's one case from the inner fjords of Finnmark where they would round up a bunch of adolescent boys and then the strongest one would play Stalo with seaweed on his head and a coat turned inside out, carrying a big stick. He has two retainers called his high men or homen who would follow him around and ahead of them they would have two carolers who go from door to door. When the singers are not invited in, they leave and Stalo comes over to the window and demands taxes for the king. Then the master of the house will invite him and his retainers in and pour them all some liquor, whereby Stalo is appeased. He would also go into the shed and pester the maids who were working there with the animals, and if they didn't have some cake or bread to give, Stalo might pour a bucket of water over their heads or poke them with a stick. This is obviously one of those cases where mumming has merged with caroling traditions, like the cases elsewhere with the Yulebuck tradition in Scandinavia. There's also a more rustic account of how the Christmas stallo was practiced in Stulfjord, roughly the same area, up until about 1800, and that goes like this. In the olden days, they used to make someone stallo for the Yuletide. He went from farm to farm, and there were many who followed him who were called the high men. And when they came across girls, stallo would poke them with his wooden thing that was shaped like a phallus. Stallo was dressed in rags and old oilskins and trousers, and he was ugly and terrifying. He had his wooden phallus up front that he used when he poked and demanded taxes from the girls, and those who couldn't pay, he would poke until they screamed. One time, Stalo was left behind when his retainers entered the house. Then the girls ambushed him and tore his clothes off until he was naked. Because this is Christmas, everybody's wearing their nicest clothes and they're clean, right? And there are several descriptions of this uh, Stalo mummer running around with this stick that represents his penis which is charred in one end, so that when he pokes the skirts of the girls, uh, it leaves a mark of soot, you know, dirtying them. The general consensus here seems to be that it's some kind of fertility rite. Otherwise, the seasonal motifs attached to Stalu place him in the position of one who punishes those who transgress against the taboos of the Yuletide, much like Lussi does in Southwest Norway. Now, if I were Sami myself, I might have felt tempted to recreate this proud and ancient rite of Yuletide Stalo with his big swarthy dick. But I'm not, so any Sami futurists out there do please take note. I think the time is long overdue to give Stalo his due place back in the Christmas celebrations. Still, last year I swore that I would make myself a Yule Goat costume even if it kills me. And it almost did. The idea was to make a classic one with a hinged jaw that clatters when I pull a little string. I found a decent block of wood, which turned out to be ash, not really the ideal carving wood, if you ask me, and I treated myself to a nice Swedish slade knife. Very sharp. The problem is that when I start these projects, I get tunnel vision. I don't take the breaks that I need. I exhaust myself, plain and simple, and that's when you start making mistakes. So instead of calling it a day when I got tired, I just pressed on trying to shape this block of wood into an upper jaw, and that is when the knife slipped and went straight through my trousers and through my thigh, leaving a clean but nice and big gashing, bleeding wound. I went to the emergency room, I got some stitches, and luckily I didn't need to be hospitalized, but the doctor said it was not that far off. However, I did finish the project with newfound respect for the blade and the Yule Goat, which definitely got its due that fateful morning. If you look into the mouth of the beast, you will still see my blood smeared across the upper jaw. Of course, when Christmas came, I went and took the Yule Goat out for a spin. The problem is that there is no established Yule Goat tradition in New Jersey, so people, my acquaintances, did not really know how to respond. 
It's not obvious that the blanket-swaddled maniac with the bells and the goat's head is an atavistic force of nature whose first has to be quenched. So I had to tweak the tradition a little bit, so I, I carried around a bottle of aquavit and actually knocked on people's doors and poured them a drink instead. Then some of them kind of got the hint and invited me in for a drink, so it kind of worked out. Streets aren't too crowded on Christmas Eve, but I might have scared the living daylights out of one or two dog walkers. I hope I made the town a little bit more mystical that night. They get their bog body back. This was Lindo Man, We Want You Back Again, the official Lindo Man campaign song by the Lindo Primary School. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. I'm not quite done yet, so don't just, you know, don't just fuck off. With this episode, I'm going to try to wrap up the Brute Norse year, which has been more active than perhaps the output of podcast episodes would indicate. Podcasts, at least the style of podcast that I do, takes an enormous amount of time. It takes full work weeks to put together. If you're doing essay-style podcasts where you're researching, editing, doing everything yourself... And, and, and beating yourself up over things not being quite the way you wanted to, so you put put it off for months and months and, uh, and re-record shit and all of that crap. But I've been doing a lot of other stuff this year. Uh, I started out by writing the liner notes for Tussmörke's uh, most recent uh, album called Hestehoven. Really phenomenal stuff. I did a couple of online lectures and classes based largely on the Love Spells and Erotic Sorcery book that I put out a while back. I tried and failed to schedule a few others, mostly because of my own scheduling difficulties. I played a retro Scandi futuristic DJ set for a noise show by a local booking company. Shout out to 23 Unchanged Mind. I also hosted a Norwegian hot dog pop-up in conjunction with the David E. Williams show in Lambertville, New Jersey. Over the past year, I've been trying to enable and groom a local brewing company into making Norwegian farmhouse ale. Shoutouts to Kenneth Lien for bringing the goods with some fucking obscure Norwegian quake yeast. I've been working on the Fool's Mary Part 2, which will be all about libations and beverages. People ask me when it will be out. Um, it will be out when it's ready, I guess. I wrote the foreword for Rowdy Gerson's The Impudent Edda which is the first English translation of the old Norse mythology for Bostonians, from the original Bostonian. I also wrote an opening essay for Matthias Nulvik's new translation of the Danish and Norwegian rune poems out on Hildir. I discussed other collaborations with other people, and I kept working on some of my own publishing and translation projects, including an obscure 17th century booklet on Norwegian superstitions, and a key text about Sami indigenous religion. I was asked to come on Norwegian State Radio, but it kind of fell through because, well, I'm not in Norway. And I've made a few gentlemen's agreements to do some shows, maybe, around the United States in the coming year or the year after. So I, I guess I already said a little bit about Trollcat Press, my little uh, one-man publishing venture. Um, I managed to put out a couple of things this year. Uh, one of which was, of course, the very small collection of translated poems by the Norwegian poet Tor Ulven, one of my absolute favorites, and I call it Belong in a Stone Age. And you know, it's like, I didn't think much of it. I already had translated a bunch of poems for my friends and for my wife Janelle previously, and um, so I just put out this little art booklet thingy uh, as a homage to the poet to... Um, who is unfortunately no longer with us. Uh, I didn't really think much deeper about it than that, but uh, <laughs> the original rights holders found out real fast, which is kind of uh, uh, flattering, I guess. But it's not as if I didn't really understand what I was doing. Um, I say straight up in that little booklet that this is a completely unauthorized guerrilla translation, limited to like 60 copies or so. I think I just assumed that, well, they're not really gonna care all that much. And they're probably not going to be interested in going into like negotiations about like the you know the publishing rights for such a small like little trifling thing. They're probably just going to shut me down and say no. My ultimate idea is that like this is a 
person who deserves to be translated and brought to a wider audience, even if that wider audience is just 60 more English readers or something like that. Just turns out it doesn't doesn't really work that way. But the publishing company has been amazing. They've been they've been very nice and cordial the entire way, and and, and they've been very understanding. Let's just put it that way. And I wouldn't say so if that weren't true. Of course, I understand and respect their position completely because you don't want some random asshole uh, making uh, what might potentially become authoritative uh, translations of um, an underpublished author down the line, you know, without their control. But either way, my two cents is that it would be a great disservice to the world if this author, this this wonderful poet, Tor Ulven, is not translated uh, for a wider English audience. Um, but yes, beyond the topic of literary piracy, uh, I put out a zine just the other week called The Changeling, which treats uh, changeling lore in Norway, but built around a specific legend with an appendix on changelings and uh, how to deal with them uh, otherwise. Changelings, of course, being uh, the children of the subterranean folk, the hidden folk, the Hildur people, or whatever you want to call them, that um, have been swapped uh, for a, a human child. Um, it's a sad but uh, but fascinating complex of ideas, and I'm not quite decided yet, but I think maybe when that thing is sold out, uh, I'll probably not print it again. I don't know, we'll see. Anyway, if you go on brutenorse.bigcartel.com and put in the offer code Yuletide at checkout, you get 15% off whatever you buy. So there's that. Point is, this has been a very special and uh, interesting year, and one where I've opened myself up to collaborations in a way that I haven't really done before. So I'm very, yeah, I'm very happy to see that that's paying off. Growth in every department, except for podcast episodes, it seems. Now, for the moment that some of you are waiting for, in terms of the pre-Christian lunar solar year, if you are doing lunar Yule like I am. The year that we're swiftly leaving behind was a special one because, as some argue, it may have tied into the cycle of great bloats that are supposed to have happened every ninth year back in the day. This, by the way, is an inclusive counting system. The ninth year is the last year of one cycle and the first year of the next, so technically we could also consider it every eight years. This specific year was also a leap year in which an extra intercalary month was added to the summer. As for the upcoming lunisolar Yule of 2024, the first lunar month after the solstice starts on the 11th of January, therefore the full moon should fall on January 25th. And remember that these were occasions that were celebrated for days on end, so add a feast day before and after. And glad Yule, wherever, however, and whenever you celebrate it. Thank you.